0: Listening to www.infinite smile.org. Enjoy the Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. There's a kind of uh, mechanistic way. Of looking at meditation that we tend to discount, we tend to we tend to want to look at meditation as um, well, you just sit still and everything else follows and while that 's true on the one hand, I, I felt it would be kind of valuable tonight to kind of go through how this stillness unfolds within us within our consciousness, how it can actually work to support. Um, uh, an expanse. Sometimes when the, we, when we recognize the how, especially when ego recognizes the how it works, there's buy-in. And so, um, uh, much of tonight's talk is going to be <laughs> for, for the ego, for the mind. Um, and I hope that's okay. Um, it'll be a little bit, perhaps a little bit, uh, luxury, um, forgive in advance, uh, but anyway, the one area that I like to really orient this teaching around is the one area that I felt was missing so glaringly from my experience as a, uh, a Zen monk, uh, from my experience as, uh. You know, a a monk in both Thailand and Nepal specifically, it's the one space where I felt like stuff wasn't talked about that would have really kind of launched um, the practice ahead much more quickly. And that was with the term, I use it constantly, but let me just uh, share with you, the term witness. In other words, that there's always this awareness. There's always this awareness within each of us Of what is. Of what's going on. Even if your mind is racing a million miles an hour. There's an awareness of that mind racing a million miles an hour that's utterly still. Even if our heart is broken into a million pieces. There's an awareness of the pain of that broken heart. That is free from any and all breakage. Even if we are in the midst of a runner's high, we're doing a 13 mile half marathon and we're, you know, riding around mile 12, we've got a mile left, the endorphins are just teeming throughout our systems and we're just in a kind of bizarre bliss state. There's something that is aware of that bliss state that is beyond that bliss. Does this make sense at all? You hear I'm kind of pointing? And so what we continually try to do in this practice is, or at least I try to point all the time towards that openness, that spaciousness. And then if we can kind of rest there, everything else follows. What happens at that point? When we begin to witness, well, we start seeing that, you know, subtler and subtler and subtler levels that witness allows us to see more and more and more and more accurately and clearly what is going on in life. So, pointing out this witnessing awareness, it's, it's, kind, of, um, it's kind of bizarre to even think of it like that, because it's not something that one can point out, it's something that one cannot escape. This awareness that I'm speaking about is something you have never once ditched except during um, you know, stage uh, 2, 3, and 4 sleep. I mean, when you're in dreamless sleep, you're most likely not plugged in to this uh, witnessing awareness. Cool thing is, once you really do start plugging into the witnessing awareness and you do start becoming more and more deeply aware... Of things, it carries over into sleep, including into dreamless sleep. It's the most bizarre thing. Um, it's, it, I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to give you anything to shoot for necessarily, but it's a pretty fascinating thing when we start to quite literally not sleep. We are always awake in this life. Okay? So, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to have our um, meditation tonight. I'm going to have everybody, you know, do their, you know, we turn around and so forth. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of talk you into that space, okay? Talk you into this witnessing space, and then I'm going to let you go, okay? I do have one Dokusan appointment tonight that you can either decide to take or not. Depending on how ensconced in this witnessing awareness you are, you might just be, hey, screw it in I'm gonna sit here and you know <laughs> that would be just fine but uh uh so this is kind of this is kind of where I wanted to point uh, point us tonight um, hope that's okay all right. Can you leave one bank of lights on? Because I'm going to read something. So I'll turn it off when, uh, when I, after I hit the bell. Perfect. So while you don't have to, this may work best if you close your eyes. If you like uh, meditating with your eyes open, which I highly recommend, um, that's okay too. But this is, uh, this is from, from Ken Wilber's One Taste book that was written in uh, quasi diary form some years back and um, uh, he kind of does a beautiful job I think in a lot of different ways as it relates to teaching but in pointing out kind of this real basic witnessing awareness that we all have um, uh, he lays it out for us here so find your breath doesn't matter if it's an inhale or an exhale find your body are you feeling any tension is there a holding if there is that's fine just notice it don't try to do anything to it if you're having a hard time finding your body it's sometimes just the easiest thing in the world to look at one of two places either the space between your eyebrows just above the bridge of your nose Recognizing the sensation that you have there. Another place is the heart. How are you feeling? Recognizing that space can put you in deep touch with what is. So that's your body. How about your mind? How's your mind? Is it racing? Is it doubting? Is it filled with certitude or faith? Is it soft? Or is it hardened and at war? Just notice. Don't try to do anything to it, just notice. So let's just start by being aware of the world around us. Look at your experience. Just relax your mind. Notice this room. Let your mind and this room mingle. The environment, so to speak, that we're in. Notice how sounds float by. Recognize that this takes no effort on your part. Your present awareness in which... The experience of sound, the experience of temperature floating by, it's very simple, very easy, effortless and spontaneous. You simply notice that there's an effortless awareness of the environment in which we sit. The same is true for the sky and the clouds that are in it, the trees outside, the birds, the rocks out in the garden. You simply and effortlessly witness their presence. Once again, notice the sensations in your own body. You can be aware of whatever bodily feelings are present. Perhaps pressure where you're sitting. Perhaps warmth in your tummy. Maybe tightness in your neck. But even if these feelings are tight and tense, you can easily be aware of them. These feelings arise in your present awareness... And that awareness is very simple, easy, effortless, spontaneous. You simply and effortlessly witness them. Look at the thoughts arising in your mind. You might notice various images, symbols, concepts, desires, hopes, and fears all spontaneously arising in your awareness. They arise, stay a bit, and pass These thoughts and feelings arise in your present awareness and that awareness is very simple, effortless and spontaneous. You simply and effortlessly witness them. So notice, you can recognize the environment in which you sit because you are not this environment. You are the witness of the experiences in this room. You can feel bodily feelings because you are not those feelings. You are the witness of those feelings. You can see thoughts float by because you are not those thoughts. You are the witness of those thoughts. Spontaneously and naturally, these things all arise on their own in your present effortless awareness. So who are you? You are not objects out there. You are not feelings. You are not thoughts. You are effortlessly aware of all of those, so you are not those. Who or what are you? Say it this way to yourself. I have feelings, but I am not those feelings. Who am I? I have thoughts, but I am not those thoughts. Who am I? I have desires, but I am not those desires. Who am I? So you push back into the source of your own awareness. You push back into the witness, and you rest in the witness. I am not objects, not feelings, not desires, not thoughts. But then people usually make a big mistake... They think that if they rest in the witness, they're going to see something or feel something, something really neat and special. But you won't see anything. If you see something, that is just another object, another feeling, another thought, another sensation, another image. But those are all objects. Those are what you are not. Now, as you rest, In the witness realizing, I am not objects, I am not feelings, I am not thoughts, all you will notice is a sense of freedom, a sense of liberation, a sense of release, release from the terrible constriction of identifying with these puny little finite objects, your little body and little mind and little ego, all of which are objects and can be seen, and thus are not the true seer, the real Self, the pure witness, which is exactly what you really are. So you won't see anything in particular. Whatever is arising is fine. Clouds float by in the sky. Feelings float by in the body. Thoughts float by in the mind. And you can effortlessly witness all of them. They all spontaneously arise in your own present, easy, effortless awareness. And this witnessing awareness is not itself anything specific you can see. It is just a vast background sense of freedom or pure emptiness, and in that pure emptiness, which you are, the entire manifest world arises. You are that freedom, openness, emptiness, and not any itty-bitty thing that arises in it. Resting in that empty, free, easy, effortless witnessing. Noticing that the clouds are arising in the vast space of your awareness. The clouds are arising within you so much so you can taste the clouds. You are one with the clouds. It is as if they are on this side of your skin. They are so close. The sky and your awareness have become one. And all things in the sky are floating effortlessly through your own awareness you can kiss the sun, swallow the mountain. They are that close. Zen says, swallow the Pacific Ocean in a single gulp. And that's the easiest thing in the world when inside and outside are no longer two, when subject and object are non dual, when the looker and the looked are one taste. You see? I remember being so confused by this phrase. Well, so many phrases in my early Zen training just, I I didn't get at all. I didn't understand what, you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping? It's like, what the heck? I mean, as a fairly um, mediocre stand-up comic, I knew exactly what what are the sounds of no hands clapping. I knew what that was like. But uh, what is the sound sound of one hand? I didn't get that. You know, the old koan, does a dog have Buddha nature? And uh, the monk says, mu, which essentially means no, which is clearly wrong. So why would that, you know, be in the canon? I didn't get any of this at all. And one of the ones that really stuck with me was there is uh, there's no way to enter the great samadhi, or you cannot enter the great samadhi meaning the great opening. You can't, uh, or another way of referring to this, I also heard, uh, you cannot enter into the gateless gate. And this one really stuck with me, the you cannot enter into the great samadhi, meaning there's no way that any of us can walk into this awakening, that will never, that I can't walk into this awakening, and the fact of the matter is the I will never awaken. The me, the mine, the separate self-sense, this ego, will never, ever awaken. Now, it took me a while to kind of unpack that, but I thought that this was such a... I mean, it was one of those things that just kind of stopped stopped my mind, which is really the point. We look at meditation um, as uh, kind of a... a uh, a union or yoga of uh, body and mind. That's what yoga means, union. A union of body and mind in a really, really interesting way because we sit in a posture or we sit still, whether we're on a chair, cushion, I don't think it really matters, uh, but still uh, we are embracing um, our experience so totally, becoming so totally intimate with our experience that we shake loose the egoic structures that keep us blind to the Great Samadhi. The I will never go into the Great Samadhi. We'll never be able to go into the gateless gate. That which is not I is already there. Okay? And so what this work does is it kind of shows us what is already at peace. What is already just fine. What is already whole, that which is already full within us, is paradoxically, utterly and completely and totally empty. So here again, language kind of gets a little trippy, a little weird, but I'm going to try to kind of talk us through this, how it works. I noticed that there were two methodologies at play both of which were pretty helpful in my experience as a young meditator. And the first one, um, I loved how it was described by one person as the cattle shoot approach. Any of you guys ever seen a cattle shoot where they take a, a, a whole bunch of cows and they put them into a... Uh, you know, either for slaughter or for, I shouldn't be laughing at that, but uh, they, you know, they they put them into these ways of organizing them by shoving them into, you know, this thing that puts them single file, right? They really, really start kind of uh, coalescing. The entire herd coalesces into a single file kind of approach. And we can do this with our meditation too. If you don't like the cattle shoot approach, um, you can also just look at kind of this single pointedness, this uh, this, uh, 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 single... Single-pointed awareness. Um, and that's okay. That's okay to kind of do it in, in that way. The other option is instead of the cattle shoot, we might have the open field. Now, I am clearly um, much more of a subscriber to that open field. Whatever arises, arises. You be right there with it. And they both kind of have their strengths. Okay? The uh, cattle shoot approach or the narrowing approach... I think has this amazing capacity for helping us develop concentration. If you have, for instance, um, a real hard time with a mind that's like always kind of wandering, going into the monkey mind space, sometimes these approaches, the uh, narrow approach, can really help out. Oftentimes you'll hear people talking about mantras. Mantra. Okay? Um... There's, you know, some traditions have a whole ritual around, you know, getting your mantra from your teacher and so forth. And you constantly repeat the mantra. And that actually does a great job of helping you kind of narrow the focus. Right? Okay? Um, The trick with this is, and what I've noticed, is that people can get really, really good at kind of this single-pointed awareness. They can hit pause on the TiVo. They can, you know, they're just right there. Or in TiVo, boop, boop. You know, they just are... Absolutely, totally concentrated and totally relaxed and single-pointed. The problem with that is that sometimes you'll find when we get too deep into the narrow approach that we can bypass all sorts of stuff. We no longer identify with the thing that's at that, that point. It might be single-pointed awareness of breath. We suddenly like kind of open. We have this openness and so forth. But this single-pointedness oftentimes negates a lot of the other stuff that's going on in our world. So as a result, we develop this really amazing ability for the mind to focus, for us, if you will, to get beyond the mind, get beyond our identifications with things. But there's something that can be kind of lost in this process too if we overindulge it. Okay. The same can apply to an overindulgence on the other side, and I may be guilty of this in the sangha, um, but. What happens with when we have this kind of this much more open approach? Instead of narrowing the cattle, we just give them more room. We oftentimes will find that just in observing our experience, kind of the vipassana approach, um, coupled with a little bit of the Zen stuff that I uh, I have been taught, wisdom, compassion, tenderness, the, all that stuff can come up. Okay, but what we also can find is that someone in that open space can in many respects just kind of stay there so that the dynamism and strength and if you will spine that comes with kind of a focused approach can get lost in an open approach. That the narrowness has its place, especially if you're somebody who's just kind of, you know, whose mind is all over the place or is kind of in that, forgive, but kind of that, you know, crunchy granola, you know, oh, it's all good, everything's peaceful, kumbaya. You know, that person might need a really good solid dose of narrow approach. Okay? Similarly, somebody who is all about like, oh, we're you know, and I, you can see some meditators are in this space. I certainly had my fair share of experiences with other monks Uh, especially in the Zen tradition, that were absolutely, you know, really just right there, just, I'm going to get awakened, you know. It's like, that's not going to work, pal, that way, you know. Um, So you get to be your own alchemist here. You get to be your own spiritual pharmacist. You know the medicine you need. Both are good. Both are helpful, okay. Um, And it's important, I think, to recognize that they do Two things, both types of meditation, still the mind, okay they quiet the both kinds, they quiet the mind, and in quieting the mind there is this this component piece, this developmental step that occurs, and that developmental step is a shaking loose of everything that has held us together, <laughs> okay. And this is where it gets a little bit trippy for people because they're like, well, well no, I, 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 don't want, I don't want things to be shaken loose. But we can't help as meditators to begin to see things more clearly. And this gets to be really, really freeing and at the same time kind of uncomfortable. What happens when you actually do see the man behind the curtain and you recognize that Oz isn't as scary as we thought? What happens at the moment that you recognize everything you have, every story you've told yourself is only a partial reality? That there's more to the story. And this can be a really heartbreaking moment for people. It can also, that heartbreak can open us to infinite possibilities. That's quite beautiful. So I actually would argue in favor of this. This is why I sit here in this cushion. I think this is really powerful. This is a powerful good this is something that the world, I think, could use. It's also something that individually we all can put to good use. So, the first step in all of this as we meditate is to begin watching, it's to begin witnessing our experience as it is, not as we'd like it to be. This isn't the secret. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't, uh, you know, I'm imagining a red Ferrari. I'm imagining it, right? therefore it'll happen, it'll manifest. I will create its manifestation. I do believe we are utterly, completely, 100 percent, and totally responsible for the way we react to the world. OK? But to kind of bastardize an expression by Stephen Covey, um, we do not create the world. We can't proactively generate our world if we are negating certain things. At the acceptance of all things as they are, suddenly we bec- we become the ultimate dance partner. Okay, with with the way things are, rather than trying to make stuff happen, we actually participate with what is happening, co-creating then a world, co-creating a life that's a reflection of this deep resonance we have with all beings, with the one and the many. So we start with this witnessing, we watch our mind, we watch our emotions, we watch our feelings, we watch our thoughts, we watch our intentions, we watch, 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 watch. And in so doing, that watching allows us to disidentify with all the things that are arising. We begin to see, for instance, that, consider this, let me back up a little bit. I want you to think about something that someone told you when you were much younger that has stuck with you and may have had negative reverberations in the way you meet the world now. I had a coach got hit in the head with a uh, baseball and, you know, he, of course, you guys know what he said about baseball. There's no what in baseball stuck with me. There's no crying in baseball, all right? Now, by extension, since baseball is life, and a baseball itself has 108 stitches on every baseball, and there are 108 impediments to enlightenment. Coincidence? I think not. (laughs) I know I've told you that before. I I will always, I love that line. Uh, The the point here is that no crying in baseball really kind of stuck with me. It's another way of saying, take it like a man, man." right, okay? So, you know, those little stories kind of take hold in each of us. I don't know what yours is. It doesn't really matter that we share it at the moment, but that you be aware of it. Witnessing that story and its byproducts in life, okay, witnessing that story allows us to let it Go. If we're very aware of the story, the story can't hold us like it used to. We've brought it into consciousness, and therefore, bringing it into consciousness, it no longer is a mystery. And if it's not a mystery, according to Dr. Freud, it cannot shape us in the same way. All right? So, witnessing the mind is the first kind of move we make. Watching, watching. Watching, watching the mind as a movie, watching the stage of mind as I talk about, you know, watching the performance and then recognizing, huh, it's just a performance. It's just ego going nuts. Wow. You know? At step two, we start recognizing a certain, um, uh, I'm going to use the word luminosity. We begin starting to see how everything is spirit infused, God infused. I had described to me once as, uh, "You guys remember the? Um, uh, They're really big and around early nineties. You know these." pieces these posters or or whatever and you look at them and if you just soften your gaze a little bit suddenly they become 3d but you look at all the you know just kind of a crazy design you know what i'm saying okay all right and so what what it it was described to me thusly you begin looking at that experience and you start seeing if we go narrow approach you're really like looking really hard at maybe one or f- the two of the dots or whatever, or if we're doing this back in relationship to looking at the mind. We look very carefully at our thoughts, okay? And suddenly they begin to kind of open, the thought opens up. That's the narrow approach. The broader open approach might be looking at that whole piece of paper. We can see that there's kind of a pattern, we know something's there, we're aware of it, we kind of appreciate it, and we kind of relax, okay? But then as we practice more, we start seeing another whole layer to it. That there is stuff we didn't see before. And in the not not seeing stuff that we didn't see before, there's a certain magic that begins to infuse every single thing it is that we see. That the mystery starts unfolding before our eyes, ears, noses, our skin, our taste buds. All the senses begin to just kind of, whoa, divinity starts to kind of unravel itself through us, with us, as us, to us. We become kind of devotional. It's why we bow. Namaste, I recognize the God within you, right? It becomes less about me and more about all, everything. Everything. At this point we start to, as that begins to kind of ground itself, we start seeing this deeper dimensionality. This is when the third dimension of the little poster piece that we were looking at suddenly kicks in. We soften our gaze enough, we relax enough, we become aware of the whole picture and then suddenly it opens. And we can never really go back to the blindness we had before when we couldn't see the third dimension. We know how to do that with every single picture that we see. Yeah? Every single one of those that we, you know, say, oh, check this one out. And you can kind of go, uh, oh, yeah. You know, every, everybody knows how to do it. And if you can't do it, you feel so unbelievably frustrated. I remember at, um, uh, I had just such an experience when I was in a, uh, a store where they had all sorts of these posters and his kid was just, he was beside himself because all his friends were saying, wait, you check it out, can you see And he's like, he's like getting close to it and farther, and he couldn't do it. And he started to cry. He was probably, I don't know, sixth, seventh grade, 12 years old, something like that. And all I wanted to do was just hug and say, dude, dude, in the grand scheme of things, you're going to be just fine, you know? But, you know, of course, I just kind of, just kind of watched and so forth. And all of a sudden, oh. oh. I got it! Guys, guys, wait, and this one is a banana, and this one is a motorcycle, whatever. And, he, and it's like suddenly it was that type of thrill that he had been able to just unpack this great gift. And that oftentimes is what happens to us as we begin to experience this third dimension. There's just kind of this divine ecstasy that kind of just takes over. We start recognizing that every single thing is at its core utterly empty and by extension, totally full that there is nothing that we lack, that the only thing that presents lack is our own mind dealing with stories that it hasn't let go of yet, that it's still kind of clinging to that there is this deep, deep freedom. When we can start seeing things much more clearly, we can start seeing a depth to experience that just really, really opens us. Things become a little lighter. Last week, there was a, 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 a sitter who was talking about how so much of this work feels like... Um, uh, you know when you're a little kid, have you ever had anybody like hold your arms down you try to, try to push them out? Right? And then after thirty seconds they let go of your arms and they they float up. You know what I'm talking about? That type of experience. That's what it feels like we're doing. We're meditating, meditating, really kind of focusing, kind of the narrow approach and so forth. And then all of a sudden and I thought that was really beautiful, a beautiful way of describing kind of how this process can work, that we recognize there's this lightness. I keep thinking of Milan Kundera so much this unbearable lightness of being. Another way of describing it is the the hand clench. That the hand clench, if you hold your hand so tight, okay, and then you try to slowly, through practice, 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 open your hand, you'll hit a point where it just stops. And then you meet a teacher, a sangha, and a teaching. Ah. Right. It opens the hand and it's much more relaxed. Now, I'm just talking about our hands. Imagine if our entire being has been clenched like that, has been coached to clench. There's no crying in baseball. I need to fit into a size blank dress, right? Whenever these stories, when we hold on to them so much or they bind us, what happens? It takes so much to, but then once we do, once we do open, okay, we recognize that, oh my goodness gracious, not only am I fine, but I am not really here. I am part of this great cosmic dance. He who knows himself knows God. Suddenly that opens us quite deeply The last step is the one that I think is the most important. And that's the one where we kind of come back from that mountaintop into the world. And we start recognizing that we can't really enter into this great samadhi because the great samadhi is us. We've always been that great samadhi we bring this ability to look at the picture and see the depth so to speak and see you know the design and so forth and we can appreciate every single level of it and we can see it in all things we can start to see an added dimension to every single aspect of our life in the most beautiful way it's spontaneous it's effortless it's not something we have to work at it's something we actually are In a bizarre way, we start to get this sense that the world realizes itself through us, that spirit realizes itself through our experience. We start seeing that these hands that we can hold up in front of our faces are actually an extension of the infinite. As such, they are not my hands, they are God's hands. What are you going to do with them? Becomes the question. How do we treat ourselves from this perspective? As something that is truly holy. And by extension, everything else is seen and treated as something that is truly holy. And we walk with the bodhisattva's feet. We walk as agents of constructive, awakened change. And we make sure we pick up the kids from school on time. They're not separate. And I think this is the coolest thing is that we're actually able to take this ancient teaching and kind of weave it into very carefully the world in which we live right now, 21st century. We get to kind of co-create how this is going to unfold, how it's going to look. But we start by recognizing that there's no way we can really enter into that great samadhi. It's already here. We just got to treat everything very carefully in ways that allow us to ascend allow us to meet stillness be it narrow or open through a meditative practice that we witness constantly what's going on and that in rather spontaneous ways with a little bit of guidance and support from each other it all unfolds quite beautifully You can't do it alone. This is why you alone will never enter into the great samadhi. It's already here. minutes for questions if anybody has any yes so when you have a story that you become aware of it seems like it doesn't just become becoming aware of it once doesn't take the power out of it you have to kind of keep reminding yourself in a way just constantly, My recommendation would be to constantly be aware of what's coming up. And if a story is coming up that has this ability to keep coming up, that's where our steadiness of practice helps us so much because what we do then is we can begin to see the story coming up and instead of doing the habitual move, which most likely our whole life has been to clench around it or to avoid it, you get me? Instead, we're remaining open with it. And the more we can do that, the less that story can work its mystery because it's no longer mysterious. And so the single awareness that we have, that's all that's needed to begin that process of what I sometimes term disidentification with it. We recognize, oh, there's that story again, as opposed to, uh, I am this story. No, you're not. You're... Bigger than that. You're what's watching that story unfold. You're what's watching that story try to grab the attention of the actor on stage so that it can deliver, once again, a convincing soliloquy. Right? You're in the audience. And we begin to see that, oh, I can choose whether or not to believe the fullness or partiality of that story or disregard it altogether. And the practice of sitting still prepares you or gives you an opportunity to let that come up and keep saying, oh, there you are again. It simultaneously prepares you for a certain steadiness when the story comes up, Mm -hmm. and it allows you to see the story more clearly. Boy, that story, that's not even, that has no connection to how i feel about the world at all that's my grandfather's voice or that's cultural or that but your voice it may be your voice that's true but your voice is interdependent with all the voices you ever had speaking to you as a small child right so the stories that we have authored that our ego has authored and they put in a script pile or file or whatever it is all those stories are dependent on all the influences that we've received, all the causes and conditions Mm -hmm. that arose from the time we were very young to this present day. The cool thing about meditation is it starts to give you space around those stories. You start to be able to see the stories. Now all you have to do is choose whether you want to believe them or not. What a gift. We call that freedom. But typically... Especially when we're just starting out, if we just see the story once, we're still then pulled back into its orbit most of the time because it it has a lot of has a lot of power. But then once we're pulled back into it, we can go, "Wow, I just got pulled back into that recognition that one was pulled by the gravitational pull, the gravity, the gravity of the story. That's freedom. That's the space between objects. That you know, there's space between the moon." And the Earth, right? That space right there is not bound by either. It's not pulled by either. But the mass of the Earth and the mass of the Moon, to go all physics, on you, right? They support each other in in this great orbit. And what we do is we begin to actually extend past the orbit. We become the space, metaphorically and actually. Thank you bet. Yeah. <laughs> yes. A little bit of if you have both the narrow practice, can you also have if you ha- if you're a narrow practitioner, can you also watch your narrow practice? Like, is is there a co- can you combine the field and the cattle? Well, the let's. Can you combine the two practices like at the same time? Yeah, I guess so. Let me tell you where I I land with that because. Uh, can only say this from personal experience, so I'm sure that there's other teachers who would utterly and completely disagree with me, and that's just fine, because they're right. Okay? Um, uh, And so am I. Uh, I think that it works something like this. The open practice allows for the focused practice to coexist with it. Whenever... Whenever I've noticed myself going like all Nazi on my practice and so forth, I'm able to observe that technique, so to speak, as a function of my ego wanting something. That is not entirely bad, because if your ego ultimately doesn't want awakening, it ain't going to happen. You have to want this on some level. It gets you started, and then you realize, uh uh-oh, right? ego's like yeah awakening we want to enlighten ourselves and, and so forth and then what happens ego realizes god damn it what have i done you know it's just the way it, it's the way it works having having said that when we kind of kind of for me when my practice would really really narrow and i could begin to kind of pull back and watch it i found that the narrowing invariably supported what the opening could show so i that's why i say that they're both necessary but the opening allows for the open approach allows for the narrow to coexist with it the narrow tends to not it tends to ignore and i would also argue this is a theory that i have and i might be wrong again but The open approach seems to allow for a much broader recognition of neuroses that the narrow approach tends to ignore and go right past. So, you can have, in other words, a functionally uh, single pointed mind that can just shut everything off, be the world's greatest meditator, and still be a total jackass. I actually have seen that. Doesn't mean it's true. Certainly there are people in the other approach who are jackasses as well, but at least the, uh, I would argue, the shadow experience and so forth is at least subject to the light of that open approach more so than the narrow. Does that kind of make sense? I hope. Yeah. Great questions, guys.